I'm very enthusiastic about sharing this latest、um, podcast episode with you. It's with Anna Dumitriou, who is a, a pioneering bio artist who's made a diversity of creations exploring CRISPR, antimicrobial resistance, and AI. And the way she works is she's conducted many residencies in renowned research institutions worldwide, which include Imperial College, the EPFL,、um, the Wellcome Trust in Cambridge. Where she essentially follows research groups, learns their methods and techniques in depth, and then makes a synthesis of this through her artwork, which has included、um, digital media, textiles, and sculptures. <laughs> She's very eloquent, so I'll let her speak about it herself.、Um, but I hope this episode shows how important it is to think about the bigger ideas around biology, the conceptual frameworks, the philosophy, the beauty, the hidden links,、um, and. The world of microorganisms really is the best platform for this. So I really hope that her work inspires you as much as it inspired me,、um, and that I captured some of this on this episode. Let me start by presenting yourself and telling us what your artwork is about and what themes it explores. Thank you for inviting me to speak.、Um, yeah, my name is Anna Dimitriou. I'm an artist based in the UK,、uh, in Brighton specifically, and I work with、um, infectious diseases,、um, synthetic biology, AI, robotics, and new technologies. And my work tends to kind of draw threads between the past, so sort of historical understandings and things that have happened in the past, and kind of future technologies. So sort of drawing links between them and exploring sort of those sometimes inconsistencies or, or, or themes around that.、Um, and your artwork often is actually physically constitutive biological material. So, for example, one of your most recent projects on SARS-CoV-2 actually has SARS-CoV-2 RNA. So it's not in its infectious form, but it, it's actually contained in there. Why is that important to you to actually have the biological matter in your art? I mean, I think it's 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 a bit like the idea of a relic, although a kind of secular relic. So.、Um, So it's it's like that the actual trace of the actual stuff has kind of touched it is 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 what's important. So it's something there's a sort of frisson, a kind of sublime kind of reaction that you get to it, a kind of visceral reaction、um, in a number of ways. So it's kind of like the sublime because it's this sort of awe before、um, this like organism that's changed the if we think it's an organism, but anyway, this microbiological material that has changed、um, the world.、Um, in sort of, I've also done works that are embedded with plague DNA as well. So things like that. So these organisms that have changed the world, but they're in this kind of safe form, so you can approach them, but you can still you still have that kind of、um, what Edmund Burke called.、Um, All the motions of the senses are suspended with some degree of terror. That's what he called it.、Um, and then to misparaphrase Jean-François Lyotard, he called it the straining of the minds at the edge of itself and at the edges of reason.、Um, so it's this sort of thing where you try and hold what this actually is in your mind and it, all the impacts that it's had. And it's a kind of it, it, it's, it's almost a pleasure. To have this kind of straining of the mind, I, I think that's. I mean, there's been a lot written on this notion of the sublime, but I think, sort of, I'm either the earliest or one of the earliest people to write about the idea of a bacterial sublime,、um, and I think you know this viral sublime has kind of evolved from that,、um, and 
you know, these notions that are very connected as well. But bacteria are different because we know they're definitely living forms. Um, they don't need they can they can replicate on their own. They don't need another cell to do that. So so there's some differences. But I mean, Edmund Burke, who was this, you know, 18th century philosopher, um, wrote uh, and political theorist um, wrote things like that uh, on his book, the um, uh, um, philosophical inquiry on the beautiful and the sublime. He said that um, the littlest things could be sublime. So he wrote this in um, 17 something. So he'd already, you know, already aware of Edmund Burke's drawings and Van Leeuwenhoek's microscopy. So he, he, he hinted at that as, as a kind of early hint on this idea of the sublime. He also talked about obscurity being very important for the sublime. So it's something that is very tiny, very obscure, you can't kind of get a handle on it. So all these kind of things fit in. And then people like Emmanuel Kant, who read Burke and was frustrated by it, um, you know, this sort of inspired him to write, uh, he wrote his own book on the sublime. And then he wrote Critique of Judgment, which has a huge amount on notions of the sublime in that. And he talks about this sort of mathematical sublime where the sheer numbers of things, you know, are hard to hold in your brain, like the number of stars in the sky, but also the amount of bacteria in the world. So it's, it's hinting, I think, at these kind of things, but also making it real, making it visceral it's presenting you with it although you can't see it and you kind of just have to trust me that I really have put it there but I have yeah and w one of the other projects that was quite similar was um make do and mend Maybe mm -hmm. you can talk a bit more about that so you used CRISPR to remove an antibiotic resistance gene from a bacterium from E. coli and then yeah. you physically inserted a, a sentence which was make do and mend and this is a world war ii slogan um so and when you say the sentence, is this in nucleotides and amino acids? Oh, it, it, it was in um, converted from ASCII code to base four to the DNA bases. Um, okay. So, yeah, so the ASCII code four digit, yeah, well, it was the, the eight digit codes, wasn't it? ASCII, American Standard Code for Information Interchange, and then converted into base four. So that's in binary, then into base four, and then the ATGC. Okay for the four different bases um so yeah so that piece was made in collaboration with technion um through a project called mrg grammar where they were looking at um trying to understand gene regulation in different organisms so i worked with bacteria and I removed um the antibiotic resistance gene it had an ampicillin resistance gene on it and a Paired the break in the genome because with bacteria, as I'm sure you know, uh, but maybe not the listeners, um, they have these circular genomes and it, they don't have a repair mechanism like human DNA can. Um, so you actually have to physically stitch it back together, which is very much like this idea of make, do, and mend. So the start of the antibiotic age um, was. 1941 was when Florian Chain got antibiotics working in human human patients. They're less well known than Fleming, but they also won the Nobel Prize. They're the ones that actually got it working um, as a as a proper medicine. So, uh, but they weren't so interested in kind of public image. They were interested in their scientific image. So they they're not so well known in that world. Um, but so that's the start of the antibiotic age. It's also around the time that the government launched. Well, it is the time the government in the UK launched the um, utility mark, which was marked uh, CC 1941. It's got this weird kind of pa two Pac-Man 
looking kind of logo with number 41 there. Um, and it was stamped on furniture, clothes, all sorts of things that were using using the materials in a sustainable way and it stood for controlled commodity 1941 so it was like under these things that were controlled um but the interesting thing is like penicillin wasn't a controlled commodity in the same way they you know they mm -hmm. even though fleming kind of hinted in his nobel prize winning speech this sort of idea of um of uh antibiotic resistance um that that wasn't really thought about until kind of much later um and only now that we have genomics technologies and things like that can we really see the impact of it and what's what's happening with it so and and they talk about misuse of antibiotics but that's an interesting term because how can you misuse them when you don't even really know how to use them no antibiotics are uh, tested on women of childbearing age not tested on children and you know you can't have these massive trials for everything to infer the dose for every different shape and size of people so now we're moving to a time of personalized medicine but i mean that's now and we've been using this thing it's saved millions of lives so it's hugely important but the idea is that it wasn't a controlled commodity and so there was also this metaphor of make do and mend which was told sort of to housewives to like if your clothes are out of fashion don't throw them away patch them up kind of tuck them in or whatever hitch them up whatever to do with the fashion or, or like how and it taught you how to darn and how to stitch and i was thinking about these metaphors of repair and you know patching and things that you talk about when when you're doing kind of synthetic molecules kind of patching the the met the break in the genome and things like that so could we kind of patch or repair antibiotic resistance with CRISPR so I'm not but I'm not suggesting that as a design solution because it that doesn't work because you can you can repair one colony um but you can't repair you can't repair lots of colonies that actually add it out edit out the antibiotic resistance I know this because of all the technical stuff because I do all the hands-on microbiology I work with scientists but I do it all hands-on so I learn all this stuff quite intensively which is how what helps me be able to communicate it um, because if I didn't understand how it really worked, I wouldn't be able to kind of tell its story. So, so we patched the genome, um, and then I grew that onto silk, and then I used that to patch an actual World War II women's suit that I managed to acquire that was stamped with this CC41 mark. So the, the, the bacterial grown into silk, which was then sterilized. Wow. And I mean, to me, what was really beautiful is that we, we often talk about um, the metaphor of um, DNA as a library and base, pay, base pairs as letters, but you took it quite literally in terms of, you know, you writing, writing out what you wanted said. Hmm. I was just imagining like um, plasmid as messages in a bottle or what if we could. Oh, I thought of that. I've been trying to, I've been trying to do a piece with with plasmids um, in a kind of, I've got this glass, these glass ring shaped bottles. Um, and we've had a, a long term thing about doing a piece like that. And I'm still, yeah, and, and referencing witches bottles as well as these kind mm -hmm. of things. And, and I originally I wanted to do, and I've done a few events around debating whether I should do it or not, or how I could do it. The idea of, um, of actually exhibiting within these bottles um, for, um antibiotic resistance plasmids which are legally allowed to be exhibited mm -hmm. but should you could you 
how would you do it? And so we've done quite a few events on this and we're still trying to work on that. It's an ambition to produce that piece. Mm -hmm. And I think some, some people are actually looking into using um, bacteria as these like repositories of living information to encode mm. all kinds of data. Um, yeah. yeah, and DNA, um, yeah, DNA storage is another thing. But yeah, I was interested. I was interested in the antibiotic resistance plasmids, and I kind of was interested in exhibiting them. It was it. I had the idea before they were present in the UK, like NDM one, New Delhi beta uh, metallobetalactamase one, um, before it had come to the UK. I mean, and and so I mean, it was here, but it wasn't in the sewage system. But now it's yeah. you know it's it's present. Um, so so it sort of changes like the actual artwork sort of predated it coming here but now it's here so then that changes whether like scientists are willing to do it or not and things that are still still kind of in you know involved in this and like how would i if i wanted to denature it but exhibit it like how should i do that and things like that so we've been debating that the pandemic kind of i was going to do it with a series of four other kinds of plasmids to kind of get something out there but the pandemic sort of got in the way of my collaboration with the uh, National Collection of Type Cultures that I've been doing a lot of this work with. But um, we had ambitions to do that. And I did some events at the British Science Festival, I think in 2017 on that. I did a, I've, I wrote a book and did a project called Trust Me, I'm an Artist, which is about the ethics of artists working in laboratory settings. And so we did a series of like public events with artists talking about complicated projects that they wanted to make with scientists and debating that in front of an audience and seeing what could be allowed, what couldn't be allowed, how would it, you know, and this sort of knee jerk reaction of a scientist to say, no, you shouldn't do that. But like, but actually come back and say, well, how, if we really wanted to do it safely, how would we do it? And so, you know, and it's quite an interesting one because it's probably not dangerous, but also people are very scared to say yes to it. So it's, it's quite, it's still like, and I'm really interested in that complexity not not like i don't want to do like some weird thing that is just you know something dangerous just for shock value i don't care about that i want to engage people in the issue that there are these um you know antibiotic resistance plasmids and that's how antibiotic resistance is spread and that they're around and how they work and have a better understanding of the mechanisms of antibiotic resistance and what it is is the point of the work of why i want to do it so it's not about like and, and anyway, I think it's so kind of esoteric knowledge in terms of microbiology that most of the public wouldn't be shocked by it because they wouldn't understand the piece. So it's sort of it's got levels of complexity within it. And I'm very interested in kind of following those routes, but I'm still working on that one. Yeah. And you mentioned ethics. And as far as using biological material as a substrate of art goes, so you use nucleic acids, bacteria, would you be comfortable with using quote-unquote more complex life forms so let's say um, insects or even mice as a physical substrate for your art that makes sense I'm I'm not that interested in doing that I'm working with CRISPR in plants with a new project well not that new project but a project that I'm working on called uh, biotechnology from the blue flower in fact the yeah uh, so so I am, yeah, I'm interested in how people use it. I, I did a short residency at the Welcome Sanger Institute as part of this project MRG Grammar, and they were looking at 
um, mouse immune cells, mouse T cells and doing CRISPR on that. But obviously I was, it was tissue cultured cells rather than the actual mouse. So I was a, a few degrees removed from anything to do with, to do with the animals. So I was just kind of observing what they were doing there and trying to understand their process as part of the project. But I ended up going down this microbiology, bacteriological route rather than, rather than the, um, the, uh, yeah, that working with those higher life forms. I mean, I'm interested in how it impacts us, um, and how it impacts animals and things like that, and how it could be used as treatments for disease and things like that. But I haven't worked with anything like that. There are, I mean, there are artists who are very interested in that sort of stuff, but, um, yeah, I haven't been doing that specifically. Okay. Um, and so you mentioned being interested in synthetic biology, which I find to be a very exciting space because we're essentially creating life forms that have never existed. And um, in a way, in the course of evolution, the kind of decision point in evolution was, are you viable? Can you replicate yourself? But we, if we come in, we can introduce other decision points and other criteria of success including ones that aren't linked to function, but that could be based on, let's say, beauty or just novelty. Um, so I guess do you see your artwork as potentially experimenting with bringing life forms into these unexplored spaces that are using your own criteria of success and which could include beauty or things that don't serve a purpose? I mean, I guess in uh, removing an antibiotic resistance gene didn't serve a lot of purpose for the bacterium and replacing it with that repair fragment. I mean, it didn't do it too much harm, but obviously it's not resistant to, to that um, antibiotic anymore. And that's the sort of twisted thing to do for a synthetic biologist, because normally you're trying to make them have a resistance gene. So you can mm -hmm. kind of do an experiment and use it as a way of telling that something had happened. So we were kind of like removing that and doing so you have to kind of do a backwards experiment as well to see it it really it actually adds quite a substantial level of complexity to even doing it that you're doing it in this kind of backwards way um so i guess i did that for my own aesthetic reasons well to, to make an artwork um that was telling this story this important story and i mean and the artwork the idea of the the work is also to think about things like you know at the start of the antibiotic age we didn't really foresee antibiotic resistance as a kind of mega thing like it is now. Mm -hmm. Will something happen with CRISPR? That's not to say that we should not do it because I'm not anti doing these things. Antibiotic resistance, uh, antibiotics saved millions or billions of people um, and gave them longer lives, healthier lives and all sorts of things. So it, it's been They've, it's been a fantastic thing. There's no denying that. We need to be careful how we use antibiotics and things like that. And we need to be careful how we use CRISPR. And we're, we're more advanced. So we should have a better understanding of, of the impacts of these things. But it's always like this butterfly kind of effect of like, you just don't know what one thing's going to do, whether you should stop. That, that's another matter. I don't think that that's a viable solution because the potential of synthetic biology could be like the, with the plant science stuff um, could be to make plants that are more viable for um, a post climate change situation. Like if certain countries are much hotter, droughts, more 
occasional rain or, or you know rainstorms and flooding and things like that if you can make plants are more viable in those situations by knocking out a few genes which is more gene editing using CRISPR rather than you know transgenics they don't so much it's quite difficult to do transgenic actual transgenic plants so um so talking about these kind of what they call new plant breeding methods which could happen in nature they'd just be much slower mm -hmm. i mean i don't think it's viable to say no we shouldn't look down this route because it's basically a kind of updated method of what we've been doing for years which is exposing plants to large amounts of radiation to cause mutation and then selecting them and growing them um but that takes so much longer than targeting the edits and knocking out the things you you know you want to knock out these different genes um so so i think yeah i think it's very important to to not think you know we shouldn't just do things because there are ethical implications on both sides mm -hmm. and something that's really linked to synthetic biology is obviously all the tools of computing of ai um do you use ai in your artwork as in to generate the artwork as a tool not so much to generate it we use it to do things like in the robotic works to kind of do like face recognition and skeleton tracking and things like that so we use it like that and then sometimes i mean we used a neural net in the archaea bot which is the um it's an underwater robot based on archaea um and it's it's it, the uh, the sort of tagline is uh, a post singularity post climate change life form so it's the idea that these sulfalobus acidol caldarius archaea um, which are one of the most ancient life forms on the planet, which were found at Yellowstone Park um, in the in the hot springs there, in the you know in these bubbling kind of strange pools that they have there. Um, they think they're one of the oldest life forms on the planet. They're highly acid tolerant, and um, they uh, love hot temperatures, sort of eighty degrees or something, sixty to eighty. And so you could sort of hypothesize that these would be like the ideal life forms for a, you know a, a world ruined with acid rain and and hot temperatures and things like that. They're they'll still be fine. They were here there at the beginning. They'll be here long after us. And then we were thinking about these sort of fears. It was at the time when everyone was talking about fears of AI and AI gone wrong and all this sort of stuff that we first made this artwork. And so we, the scientists we were working with, which was at the Mara project at Imperial College in London, they um, they were looking at the Arkella motors, these little cogwheel-like motors that are on the outside of the Archaea that use it, they use to swim around. So they're a bit like those kind of cogwheel-like motors that E. coli have, but much more basic. So their aim, which they've had some success with, was to look at them under electron microscopy, study their form and then recreate them using DNA origami. So they could make the motors powered with ATP, kind of molecular motors, a tiny scale. And what they wanted to do was kind of pull off, like remove the tail and kind of put a molecular drill bit in it. And you could attach it to the idea of the project. It's a very futuristic project. Attach the thing maybe to a bacterium or something like that, target it with a protein or something like that, and send it maybe into the body to drill into bad cells and burst them. Like okay. maybe that so that that's that's this Mara project that's still ongoing. There's lots of publications at um Impera. And they 
they talk a lot about molecular robot assays and things like that. So we were thinking about this idea of robots and when we were thinking about this idea of the fear of AI. And so we kind of combine these things and put a neural network inside this archaea robot, which swims around in this quite iconic kind of way um, and collects data. And and, uh, and we were sort of hypothesizing that, you know, this um, transhumanist idea of uploading where, you know, people try to think of that you could upload your consciousness to a computer and live on in silica ad infinitum for a, as long as the computer switched on or or whatever, which might be a sort of thing that Elon Musk or somebody like that might come yeah, up with you know, as a sort of future solution. It's it's dystopian, I agree, um, highly dystopian, but it's sort of playing with this idea of these these tech, you know, kind of eco, not eco, uh, what, what do we call them? Uh, Techno-positivist um, tech sort of billionaires, a sort of thing they all come up with because they're talking about moving to Mars now. Um, you know things like things like that are living in space um, and it, it's kind of hilarious because I think moving to Mars is going to be really boring it's just like red stuff and you can't even go out so it's like I don't know how come that's a solution it's worse than being under a Covid quarantine <laughs> I should think because <laughs> I was wondering when you do use these high-tech um, projects do they feel less your own than for example when you make handmade crafts and your no, no? is it no, no, because it's all it does. It's all kind of the same, actually. It's all the the mindset is very similar. You're sculpting. You still like for three D printing. You still use these sculpting tools and things like that to to create the the models and and stuff like Blender or something like that. Um, so yeah, no, they don't feel more removed because you have to go through. Actually, if anything, they're harder. You have to go through a lot to make these things. Actually. Because the designs, it's not easy just because um, like it's made using computational stuff or, or 3D printing technologies and things like that. It's it's not easy. These things go wrong all the time, you know. And yeah, because you, I mean, you've been building up your expertise in all these scientific domains with each project. So I guess there you probably learn more about AI, about um, deep learning and... I mean, I was artist in residence in the Centre for Computational Neuroscience and Robotics at Sussex University from about 2004. So I did a lot with AI in the early days of AI life. Um, so, so in, in, and and it was a more it was around that time that I started to work with bacteria. But I'd already, you know, I was already interested in computers from school. I guess I I was the first year that it was available to do A level computer science at school. So I, and I did that. So, you know, it's I, I've got a background in both of those. Well, actually, I have less of a background in biology, if you think about it. So I actually didn't do biology at school, you know, for any of the exams or anything like that. Um, it, it wasn't taught in a way that was very engaging in those days. It was all about reproduction. It was a girls school. And I think they were trying to put us off having sex. Um, so it was it was quite off-putting the whole the whole thing so it's taken it take it took me a few years but I was actually really interested in like cell biology and stuff like that and and things but it took me it took me until about the sort of the early sort of the sort of late um sort of sort of from 96 onwards I guess that I started to work kind of in this in this kind of realm um yeah 
And so an idea that's often explored with um, with bacteria is obviously ideas of symbiosis um, and what you've even called in some case hypersymbiosis. And I'd be interested in um, whether you'd like to see the world, uh, the living world more as cooperation rather than driven by competition. Because um, there, there's um, very much a rhetoric where we, have, we, where we speak with, about competition, survival of the fittest, uh, life's a jungle, that kind of things. But I mean, if you look at the world, it also is um, all about symbiotic interactions with bacteria, but also trees and the roots or coral reefs. Um, so do you, yeah, I mean, you prefer to see symbiosis, cooperation, generosity uh, in the living world? I don't know about generosity. Um, that's, that's sort of, weird I mean I don't think I don't think anything's like thinking about that that much it's just everything's trying to do its thing um precariousness is quite interesting because there's a lot of rhetoric that rhetoric that everything has to be in balance that there's this magical point where everything's in balance but um but actually if everything's totally in balance then you get this sort of static thing which is death really um so in in sort of a life theory people talk more about precariousness as being like an integral thing for life so you're in this sort of point where you're you know trying to feed trying to do this trying to do that that's the more the living the living organism so um and but also similarly this other rhetoric about as you as you mentioned about you know competition or that that that's sort of there as well but maybe not as much as people say so is that there are all these things everything's trying to eat everything else basically and nobody pays a lot of attention to that <laughs> you know um so and, and it, that's why you get these complex ecosystems and things can move in and actually ecosystems can re rebalance i'm using my own hated term now but um it's this butterfly effect thing again i think this you know this chaos um, I guess you rightfully caught me out on um, not supposing organisms have intentions and things. And obviously, we always try to avoid anthropomorphization. Um, I just wonder if sometimes you kind of let yourself think that way. Because, of course, in scientific publications and everything, you're always encouraged, you know, the virus doesn't want anything, protein doesn't want anything. And I subscribe with that view, but sometimes it is just, just to get intuitions, to get ideas useful. Um, just to allow ideas of um, you know, design and, and will, just I guess as an idea generator. I think, so, I mean, in terms of what viruses want or, or what other life forms want, it's, it, it, it's kind of interesting to sometimes think like that because there's this notion um, that I really like it. There's a book that I really enjoyed um, called A Field Guide to Bacteria, and it's by a writer called Betsy Dexter Dyer. And she, she says that if you kind of want to find bacteria and things like that, you have to think about what they want. You have to think from a bacteria-centric point of view. So she, she very much talks about thinking from the perspective of the bacterium. Now, they don't like have this like strong intention, like, but they do want to eat um and they you know they can't necessarily control where they eat but they they know they want to eat at the very least things that they do like these 
like gut models that I work with, um, with scientists at the University of Leeds and things like that, there's these ecosystems of bacteria and why do they change? So they've grown this, they've got this, uh, it's uh, Dr. Jane Freeman there that I work with. And uh, she's got this amazing like gut models of these bubbling jars of different bits of the gut under different pressures with different chemicals going in to feed it with all these kind of pink tubes going between them that have this like pink food that they they like um like um and uh and then she gives them clostridium difficile um bacteria into them and they still grow perfectly happily so they seed them with like somebody's fecal sample and then and then it grows for a while and then they add the c diff and it still grows beautifully and everything's happy in the world and then they give it some antibiotics and then you get this amazing Thing that they call dysbiosis where the bacteria that are these biofilms on it kind of break away and you get this like torn it looks like almost like a if in bringing it into art sort of one of alberto Gori's torn sack artworks with the holes in it and things like that so it looks very much like that and so you know why is this happening because they're killing off you're killing off those and then the c diff is moving in to the spaces and if you know and the reason it's called C. diff is not because it is difficult to cure, it was difficult to grow in the original <laughs> thing as, and, and it was grown from um, baby feces I think as well, we're doing a project on um, C. diff in babies at the moment so we're working on that. And if I take your language of listening to what bacteria want, I mean if we listen to them what what can they bring to us that we we haven't really exploited yet or if we pay attention to the bacterial world more closely, what do we have to gain? Well, we certainly have a better understanding of how things around us are working and the invisible, the invisible world. Um, but I mean, they're just really under-recognized like this, you know, that in the soil, there are you know millions of different kinds of bacteria and the plants need them to feed, to kind of capture different things. They, they have symbiotic, um, life uh, sort of things. We have symbiotic bacteria. We carry around several kilograms sometimes of bacteria in our gut. We're basically donut shaped. We've got a hole right through the middle and in that hole is his bacteria that we carry around and they're, they're separated by like from the rest of us, the sterile part of us by a thin membrane. And it's it's not an accident that they're not there by accident. They're digesting our food, mm -hmm. so we're already learning from that. And this, and then, you know, if we had a better understanding, which you know is is evolving slowly in scientific knowledge, is if we had a better understanding, for instance, of our gut microbiome, then maybe we could change things about ourselves. Maybe we could um, be happier um because there's there's a link to infl inflammation in the gut and certain um like microbiota that cause inflammation if there's an overgrowth of a certain thing that might via the vagus nerve or whatever um be affecting the the brain and making us kind of feel sad or bad you know so so there's that there's also i mean links to weight for the for the gut microbiome so people who've sometimes had um microbiome transplants from another person to cure something like C. diff usually. Um, it's not really recommended for anything else and it should be done medically. Um, not that <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of videos on YouTube on how to do it. I don't recommend you watch them. Um, and uh, but but 
in that case, you know, it's 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 in, it, it there's it's been shown that people who've had these microbiome transplants, some of them have become obese from it because they had the microbiome from uh, an overweight person, and that's that's caused them to gain weight as well because it they the bacteria in our gut affect how we take up nutrients. So if we could have a better understanding of all this stuff and what they're each wanting and how they're working together, which a lot of scientists are working on now, um, so there is a movement towards this. But I think we're still in the stage of finding out. Oh, there's another research question. There's another research question. We're nowhere near solving all this stuff. Um, we're in kind of another golden age, I think, of microbiology. There was the one in the sort of the 1880s with you know with uh, Robert Koch and Pasteur and Vinogradsky and all these amazing sort of um four sort of fathers of microbiology and um and now we're in another one because now we have genomics technology and we can apply it and we can apply it quite quickly um so we're in this kind of world again and we think we're at the cutting edge but I think in a hundred years time they'd be laughing at these kind of minion sequences that we we stumbled about using or something to do this work but I mean they're amazing so yeah I think because definitely taking the field of probiotics and using vector to enhance our performance is definitely just at, at its at its starts because we use it as you say for c diff but things that are more complex like behavior like mood um, that's going to have to take a lot more figuring out about the gut brain axis and all these interactions mm -hmm. and essentially we have to make sense of all the complexity um i'm, I'm working on a, a new version of um, my hypersymbiotics piece at the moment for medical museum in copenhagen for a show that's going to be at the charlottenburg art museum um called the world is in you which kind of fits what we're talking us, about what do you mean by psychobiotics um, yeah, so there's this, there's the, so there's the hypersymbiotics uh, in it, which is, which is a sort of general term. And then in it, I have this psychobiotics piece, which was, it came out of a collaboration with the um, UCL iGEM team, I think in 2015. And um, they were working with a, uh, a plasmid producing plasmid in a bacterium that can produce serotonin. So they made like a bacterium that produces serotonin, like a probiotic E. coli that you could, in theory, drink and replicate this, this um, plasmid in your gut to produce more serotonin. Obviously, it's not suitable for human consumption yet because it's not been tested on any humans. And if you have a huge overgrowth of serotonin in your gut or a huge production of it, it could have very negative side effects as well. So don't recommend people take it, but the, the project is sort of an indication of these kind of future medicines. So there are lots of different future medicines in this new apothecary box that I'm, I'm making at the moment. Um, and I've got, so I've got these psychobiotics and I've had the plasmid um, reconstructed. We had to go back to the sort of the iGEM parts bit where they make these, they have, they published the parts of their kind of this is the way they talk about it as if they're engineering. I mean, it is a sort of very much the engineering metaphors that I use there. So we've got the part that is the serotonin producing plasmid. And then I managed to get sponsorship from um, a company called Genscript um, because it's sort of the price of that is quite big for artist budgets and things to, to reproduce this plasmid for me. But then I'm, I'm working again with 
um, UCL who've grown it up and then sent it to me. So I've got just the plasmid, um, which will be incorporated in in tablets in 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 this artwork, but not recommended for human consumption. Obviously, are not for human consumption. They're an artwork, um, but they they'll be exhibited um, in this installation. Then I'll have um, inulin to do with the um, project biotechnology from the blue flower, which is using. Um, it's using these new plant breeding methods to knock out um, bitter terpenes from the um, from the plants, um, so that the inulin that they produce, which is a kind of dietary fiber and sweetener, if you've ever drunk Yakult, it's that caramelly taste that you can taste. It it actually tastes very strongly of inulin, um, and it's it's a prebiotic. Um, so that will be in it. Um, I've got a uh, a yeast that we've been working with Boku University, Professor Detard Matanovich um, at Boku, um, and it's the, it's part of our fermenting futures project. So it's a yeast that captures carbon from the environment and outputs lactic acid, which can be polymerized to make PLA for 3D printing. Um, so it eats carbon, outputs plastic, basically. Uh, it doesn't do it very well, so we can't claim to have solved the world's problem, but actually Detard and his um, collaborators, Michael Saar um, and other people there, are actually really pushing this this kind of research areas as well. So so they might save the world. This is a, this is a sort of artwork on the route to it. I was playing again with the idea of this, this you know, the changes, because so, you could... I mean, sort of playing with the idea that you could catch carbon and literally produce as much plastic as you want because plastic's like the negative thing but and you can produce it it rots down it produces carbon when it rots down but you can capture the carbon again so you could literally drown in plastic theoretically um obviously lactic acid is toxic to the yeast um at the moment so um we're in the slow process of evolving the yeast to be more lactic acid tolerant um and yeah it's got a few other ones in there as well i mean it's got about 23 different medicine medicines i guess of, of sort of my project yeah because i was thinking i mean at the very start of microbiology as you say with pastor it it wasn't medical <laughs> applications they were using it for industrial purpose too you know like beer <laughs> and pasteurization and back to medicine and then now we're going back again to use biotech applications and agriculture and everything so definitely mm -hmm. exciting um maybe to go back to a kind of fundamental question i don't really want to ask it in a way of what is life because i, I mean that it's very common and of course you know there's different definitions that are mostly based on functions like um homeostasis independent metabolism reproduction um but there's the way I maybe want to ask you is at what level do you see life? Because there's all with all the cell theory of life that the cell is the fundamental unit of life, that anything below the cellular level, let's say a nucleus or a mitochondrion cannot be living. But that conception, I mean, it goes back to like Schwann, Verkau, it was at the point where the level of analysis was microscopy and that was kind of the scale that was available. But now that we can see much more micro scales and much more macro scales, does it still make sense to define life at the level of the cell? I mean, it's it's a tricky thing about viruses, isn't it? It's, it's just weird that we say that they're not really living things. 
because they need something else to replicate. But there's quite a lot of other things that need something else to replicate. Um, you know, there are these sort of things that kind of, there are a lot of, I mean, a lot of parasites basically need things, other things to replicate. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a, it, yeah, it's a weird thing. I mean, homeostasis is the one that I was also taught in my artificial life kind of background of that, you, you know, if you go to, a, they used to say in the A-Life sort of lessons, um, if you turn up on a planet and there's a pink blancmange there and you have to discover whether it's alive or not, because mm -hmm. um, you've got to report back, what do you do? And, um, you know, they always said, well, don't prod it with a stick because it might eat you or something. <laughs> but if, it, if you prod it with it, if you, um, and so, so sort of the answer to the, the question was put it in the fridge and see if it maintains its body temperature. <laughs> so that, that, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, and then you get into robotic life and whether that can be life and whether, um, you know, silicon chips and and uh and yeah ai could be living as well because i mean a life at its core is about understanding what life is or trying to understand what life is rather than making life forms so in, in like computational neuroscience and things like that is about understanding the brain but then you get these engineering solutions which is more the neural networks and that well the deep learning stuff is more like an engineering solution to do certain Mm -hmm. thing so it's not so much about this sort of esoteric philosophical questions of, of what is life i don't know if i can answer your question i'm afraid yeah um, no. anyone, anyone else has come up with. i think i mean to me what was the most influential was when i read um jacques monod uh, chance and necessity he kind of gives these three criteria for life and um but obviously there's all these caveats because he says crystals kind of meet all of his criteria so if an alien were to come on earth they couldn't really so yeah, I mean, of course, it's all down to the definition. It's just um, interesting to think about yeah. it. There's a there's a philosopher in the sort of bio art field called I think Monica Bach, uh, who talks about the idea that crystals have you know sort of a intention and things like that, and that they they you know they that they are kind of life. I'm really badly explaining her work, but she she talks about these kind of notions as well, and I mean. You know, when you get down fundamentally to what DNA is, it is basically crystals all hung together. Um, and that's what we are, these sort of weird things which you can get crystallized in powders and kind of, can, if you were able to connect them all at a molecular level, that you could make something that made proteins that made a person, if we understood it to that level. Mm -hmm. What, I mean... What do you think is the hardest thing to represent in your artwork? Like when you're talking about bio arts and what is like kind of those intangible things that you find hard to visually or whatever sense to invisible, represent? Like really invisible things are quite mm -hmm. hard. Like the stuff that's really, really down to the DNA level is, is quite a challenge um that to tell that story i did a project with rob neely at the university of birmingham um which was called we called it um the chemistry of biology and alchemy of dna and that's what i was kind of talking about in this thing of like actually trying to find out what is dna so i would go around and ask researchers in the lab what is dna and you get very, you know, one of them was standing, well, DNA is this, and they just give you the textbook thing. But then I had other researchers as well. 
um, I said, well, you know, I, I sort of prompt them and say, well, we know it's a double helix. And they go, no, it's not. It's it's like a thing with all these other bits hung off it. And it, sometimes it's not even in a helix. And, uh, you know, the, this it's not even a, like that is the structure of DNA, but actually sometimes quite often not. And then and then you have all these bits dangling off of it, these methylated regions and, and all this stuff. So there's it's not just these bases and making things there there's all this and then the the physics of how it's folded in the cell is is really weird and then looking at so i'm doing a residency so so with with rob we looked at he his work is is to um do super um super resolution laser microscopy on dna um so they comb it out and look at it that attach fluorophores to it so it was like a step on from I, i'd been doing like illumina whole genome sequencing and stuff like that and then i wanted to know how what how what the magic juice was that you put into the whole genome sequencer that attaches all these fluorophores um which because i met somebody who was formerly working for um illumina who I can't name or anything. I can't even remember their name, so I can't drop them in it. But they told me they changed the recipe, like on a almost weekly basis, of this stuff that you put into the whole genome sequences. So if you get like different results, it might be down to it's not down to necessarily you. It could be down to these these dyes that you're putting into it. So I got very interested in the dyes. So I've always been interested in like the relationship of dye and microbiology. And these dyes that you attach these fluorophore uh, the, uh, with these fluorophores that you attach to the DNA. And then what they do is they were combing it out with a robot and looking at it under super resolution laser microscopy and seeing where the fluorophores were. And from that, we were able to see for the first time, like actually kind of under the microscope, um my repair fragment that said make do amend um wow. so it's kind of the first time i mean it's a little bit hand wavy the way we did it because we we had a larger region and stuff like that but we managed to publish it but in an art science journal we published it um in leonardo journal but it is i think it's the first time that a crispr edit's ever been seen under the microscope and and you could because you could work out where that region was in his uh, using his technique and his research but to actually turn that into an artwork it, although it is an artwork um and it, i was doing it for artistic reasons to actually turn it into an installation was quite challenging i mean what's hard to represent is maybe the very small but also what's emergent because let's say for example bacterial biofilms you could just mm. stick bacteria in represent them together, but that wouldn't capture the fact that bacteria behave differently when they're a biofilm. They have different enzymatic properties, um, different different functions. And yeah, I guess, how can you represent emergent properties or kind of conceptualize them in your artwork? I mean, emergent properties are quite nice because you can use them to generate artworks, to make generative artworks and things like that, if you have that kind of thing. So I was quite interested in that when I was working with uh like robotics stuff and and teaching people about how you know how a life might work and you might get these emergency systems in that um the behavior of bacteria in different situations is completely complicated um like they do so many things for so many different reasons and there are so many different species and mm -hmm. even though they're much more studied than a lot of other life forms because they're relatively straightforward to study um, in some cases, and then other cases, not at all. There's still millions of them. We don't know what they're doing, why, how, 
so much. I mean, I only learned recently because I've started doing this project with the Thompson Lab at the Welcome Sanger. I didn't know that um, the the toxin in cholera is produced from um, from a bacteriophage. Like it catches a bacteriophage, which makes it produce a toxin. And without the bacteriophage, they don't produce the toxin. That's so strange. So the phage for people listening that don't know that is a is a virus. So the bacteria have to catch a virus in order to them to produce the toxin, which causes the the bacteria to spread and proliferate um, at these these huge kind of rates that it can with these pandemic strains of cholera. And a lot of cholera strains are not dangerous to humans. And it's really interesting kind of. So I've joined I've joined a research kind of regular meeting with them. I started to join this, and it's called Cholera Club. So everyone's a once a fortnight or something i'm going to cholera club and i'm learning all these amazing kind of facts that's so strange like like that that's going on as well i never so there's a a symbiosis just at that tiny level it's not good for for the humans that catch it but it's great for the for the bacteria that want to spread yeah i I was really excited by this paper too when i read it i mean it's kind of heavy molecular biology techniques but it's like this this constant co-evolution um also kind of occurring now with uh, that we shall not be named and, and us. Um, I mean, I could probably go on for a while, but maybe you can finish up with um, you telling us about any upcoming projects you have that you're happy to share. Uh, what are the next big things, the things that spark you that you want to follow up on? Well, in the, in the near future, um, we're finishing, and so I work a lot with Alex May, um, and so we've got a few collaborative projects on that is, that's good and some solo projects we've got on. Um, so we're kind of finishing up our fermenting futures installation. So this is the one about the yeast and the, it's sort of looking at the history and the future of yeast. So it contains this this um, this yeast that can capture carbon and output lactic acid um, in an installation. And there's another installation with it called Culture, which is um, about the co-evolution of yeast and humans. So there's a theory that the reason um, people started to create villages and live together in settlements was in order to brew beer um, because of the, and so there's a co-evolution, it's called the drunken monkey theory, I believe. Um, There's a co-evolution of of yeast and humans. and, And so yeast kind of benefit from the fact that we we like them and we grow them in large quantities. So we're kind of playing with this. And so it's a kind of village, um, but quite quite um, like a sort of also like a city talking about this idea of civilization and settlement, but it's all covered with breadcrumbs that um, the scientists Oscar Atta and Dietard Matanovic have been working with, um, which basically they've, they've got another yeast, a Pickia pastorius yeast, which can now ferment. So usually it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae that's the only yeast that ferments. But they've taken, they've actually understood the mechanism of fermentation and they've put it into this Pickia pastorius, completely different yeast, um, and made that ferment. And they can make bread from this and they can make wine and they've made beer. Um, and they're kind of looking at how to do this and whether it changes the flavors and that sort of stuff. So we've got this bread, which is cooked and sterilized basically. And then we're grinding it down. The whole installation is kind of covered with these breadcrumbs from this from this novel yeast bread. Um, and then there's another piece that's to do with the um, 
the the sort of bioarchaeology of yeast we've called it like how yeast get into kind of antiquities and things like that and so we've actually scanned in 3d these colonies of yeast and we're making them out of marble dust and things like that and and, and lime and and mixed together um in to make a substrate for the yeast to grow back into but it's actually based on the colony so you've got these kind of really interesting textures and that'll be kind of a wall-based work that we're, we're just sort of finishing up. I've got quite a few projects on at the moment. Um, still working on biotechnology from the Blue Flower and we've just launched with Art and Science Node on the App Store. Um, there's, a, there's an app that they've created which allows you to populate your whole world with um, genetically modified chicory plants in augmented reality so you can tap on this bone and create this kind of forest of, of chicory plants around you and that's all tied into the history of German romanticism and the work of Goethe and it's all quite complicated working on this hypersymbiotics at the moment still working on a project with the University of Western Attica um, the Department of Antiquities and Works of Art making a kind of unruly hard to conserve bio art work that references their work to study the microbiomes of antiquities so they're looking at ancient monuments, ancient walls and Greek antiquities and looking at the microbiota of it. And they're interested in using synthetic biology and things like that to actually try and create these kind of balanced ecosystems on the antiquities. So they're doing some really fascinating work. And so we've been collaborating on that. There's lots of things. I, I, I'm full time as an artist. So I work on this and I work from the morning right until the night, especially at this <laughs> this COVID time when you can't really go and give talks anywhere or anything else. So I'm just working on this and thinking at this all the time. So I don't have other things to do apart from doing this. So I just have lots of projects on. But you also have to have lots of projects on as an artist because you wouldn't be able to survive or live because um, you need income too. So um, mm -hmm. it's always hard <laughs> as an artist, especially in a weird field like mine. And that's so impressive. I mean, I'm definitely eager to actually see your physically see your artwork have the occasion to visit it one time and I, I'd have to say that just as a science student it's really rewarding to kind of think beyond and think of the philosophy the conceptual frameworks uh, just the beauty also behind biology so mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. it's a fascinating yeah it's all fascinating the subject and thinking the history is just so weird and important to not forget and that's what I kind of try and unpick and then bring to people to talk about where we should be going with the future or how how the future is going because I'm I don't have any control over how the future goes but apart from making people think I guess as a, and that's the aim so I suppose if people want to find you you're present on most social media you have a website I am, um, I am on, on most social media that's true <laughs> yeah okay um linkedin even um instagram of course facebook of course um twitter of course twitter's great for scientists i, I so i'm i think i'm at anna dimitri uh, on twitter okay. so um, That's really yeah and my website is anna dimitri a n n a d u m i t r i u dot co dot uk so people can find everything on there including the um including all the social media links and things like that and the latest news and join the mailing list. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. This is a really interesting conversation. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you.